Life Audio. Hello, friend. Thanks for listening to the Compared to Who show today. Woo, today is a big one. I am tackling the history of health. I was going to call this, what should I do about food? And then I decided, no, it's really more about health. Why and where and how did we get so hung up on this concept of trying to find optimal health? I mean, it's to the point, y'all, where I have seen arguments on the internet where it feels like some of us believe there's actually a Bible verse that says, thou shalt take care of your body and keep it healthy, like right after the love God, love others commandment. But friend, it's not there. Most of what we take from scripture about health are ideas that we've had to extrapolate. And the crazy difficult thing is that yes, of course, our bodies are good gifts and God wants us to steward them well. But a lot of our notions around health are fairly modern. As you'll hear within the last hundred years or so, these concepts of health and the ways we track it have just been introduced. So today we go there. We go to all the hard places. Now, this is only a portion of this hour-long talk, because the hour-long talk is reserved for two groups. First of all, this is bonus content that you will find if you are in the Body Image Freedom Framework online course. And I would still love for you to be part of that course. You can save $50 anytime by using the code podcast. Go join that course if you need Body Image Freedom. You can also add a coaching component, or you can add coaching kind of as you go if you like. But that's the Body Image Freedom Framework course. You can find out all about that on my site, improvebodyimage.com. But I'm also going to open this up to another group. So if you want to hear the whole thing, if you want to hear the last half hour of this, where I really talk about scripture and kind of bring in the biblical concepts around stewarding our health, that's a whole extra 30 minutes. I'm going to offer that also to my supporters. So if you want to support the show, you can go to improvebodyimage.com and look for the support button on the top. You can make a contribution of any amount, more than $10, or you can be a monthly contributor, and I will make sure you get this full episode. Thank you for considering supporting Compared to Who. This isn't free. Each podcast episode costs more than $100 to produce. So I appreciate your contributions. Yes, we do have advertisers. And if you ever hear any ads that offend you, please let me know. They should not be on here. I don't have complete control over that, but I do have enough control to keep the weight loss and fat surgery ads out. But those only cover like a portion of one podcast a month. So your support is really important to help keep this show going. Okay, thanks for all of that. Let's get to this tricky stuff. I can't wait to hear what you think of today's show. Welcome to Compare to Who, the podcast to help you make peace with your body so you can savor God's rest and feel his love. 
If you're tired of fighting body image the world's way, Compared to Who is the show for you. You've likely heard lots of talk about loving your body, but my goal is different. Striving to fall in love with stretch marks and cellulite is a little silly to me. Instead, I want to encourage you and remind you with the truth of Scripture that you are seen, you are known, and you are loved no matter what your size or shape. Here, the pressure is off. If you're looking for real talk, biblical encouragement, and regular reminders that God loves you and you're not alone, you've come to the right place. I hope you enjoy today's show and hey, tell a friend about it. Hey there, friend. Welcome to the bonus module. I'm calling What Do I Do About the Food? Or I could have titled it, But What About My Health? Health has become one of the most confusing issues for our body image journeys. And there's several reasons for that. First, there's so much information out there and available to us that the definition of what qualifies as healthy is constantly changing. And on the food and exercise front specifically, we've been on this roller coaster following trends, following data and the new science, following the thought influencers, what they do, what they eat, how they're healthy. Woo! It's a never ending ride. Second, we've been on this journey for so long and we've heard so much data and so much information that We've been confused into believing that we have complete control over our health. Now, that might rub you the wrong way, even as you hear me say it. But we kind of believe that if we do all the things or if we don't do all the things, and if we somehow end up unhealthy at the end of all of it, it's completely our fault, Like we had complete control by the nature of everything we did or didn't do. And the pressure of that, the weight of that is enormous. And so many of us wear that weight. Then to top it all off, we mesh ideas about health with ideas from scripture. And we tend to adopt a system that says, if my health is suffering, it is something that I did to cause it. And it is reasonable and acceptable to make my life's purpose, fixing it so I can stop the suffering. And we're going to dig into the scripture behind this and really explore what is true, whether or not we are over-focusing on improving our health and whether or not it's biblical if we are. So in this lesson, I want us to explore all three of these aspects to our health journey, and food is a big part of that. I also want us to look at scripture towards the end. We're going to do that, and we're going to figure out what is the capital T truth around how we relate to our bodies versus the little T truth around what we believe health, our bodies, control, food, what was really going on there. So first, I really want to take you on a deep dive. This is going to be a history lesson of sorts, but I want you to kind of just like zoom out. Zoom out from your micro level, like looking at what am I going to have for lunch? Zoom out from your life and let's just go (laughs) way back. Zoom that lens way back and let's look at what's happened over the past century around this concept of health. Now, Christy Harrison, she's an author. She's written a book 
called Anti-Diet. And she does a really good job in that book if you've not read it. She surveys the history of diets and where some of these concepts that we use pretty commonly come from. Uh, Just a couple side notes before I get into the history. She talks about how the man who invented the term morbid obesity was actually doing the first bariatric surgeries. (laughs) So, of course, he coined a term that made it sound deadly to be obese because that's how he got customers. And we're going to go through several of those here over the next couple of minutes. But she talks about this. This part, I think, was just fascinating. She talks about where having a scale in your home came from. Now, like having a scale in our homes is pretty common, but in the early 1900s, it wasn't. And wasn't it actually until like 1925 in the United States that a lot of people had scales in their home. But before that, you didn't know how much you weighed unless you went to the doctor. And then kind of after that, the invention of the penny scale and carnival scales became a thing. But weight was not something that you monitored daily in your home. Now, a hundred years ago, it may sound like kind of like a long time to you, think about it. This means there are thousands of years of history where people did not live in bondage to a daily readout from a bathroom appliance. And I think the curious thing to explore here would be what has this access to that information done for us in the health department? Are we healthier now than we were before? I mean, we live longer for sure, but I'd argue that we aren't living longer because We our our bodies are staying smaller because we're monitoring them so closely. The keep an eye on your weight to stay healthy line has been pushed on us for the last 40 or 50 years. If you look at the numbers across the board, it actually doesn't seem to be effective. Now, in the 1930s and 40s, we actually have to acknowledge the fact that like most women weren't trying to lose weight then. In fact, the cultural standard was a little bit plumper, a little bit fuller. So a lot of women who didn't have a lot of resources to eat as much as we eat today were trying to take weight gainers to achieve a fuller figure. Can you even imagine that? Dieting wasn't a thing yet. People were just trying to get enough food. They're trying to get creative about how they could get more nutrients and calories because As you might remember, there were some wars going on, there were supply demands, and there was a lack of distribution chains. I mean, think about it. You didn't have access in the grocery store to every fruit and vegetable all year round because the only way to get access to every fruit and vegetable all year round is to bring those fruits and vegetables in from all over the world. So back then, you only had what was in season and what was local, what could be packaged and shipped. That was your choices. But what's even more interesting to consider is that it wasn't until the early 1900s that people believed in any way, shape, or form that they had any kind of control over their health. You see, germs were invisible and people actually didn't even know about germs until uh, Robert Koch, Louis Pasteur discovered bacteria in the late 1800s. But even then, it kind of took a while for people to kind of catch on to the concept, to the science, that germs were spreadable and bacteria was passable and maybe bacteria was behind some of the health issues that people were encountering. Beyond this, There's this whole concept of the perfect human body that really didn't start to come into play until around this time period, the 1930s, the 1940s. As culture became 
less fixated on the values that it used to esteem, like someone being a good citizen, someone being honest, someone being a good friend, like those values started to diminish in terms of the way people treated each other and saw each other. And what rose instead was the rise of image. Think about Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and influence people that came out in the late 1920s, I believe. And this kind of was on the cusp of a cultural shift where we were perceiving other people as valuable or attractive based on how they looked and presented themselves instead of based on character and virtue. But look around you, your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung hero of for King and Country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Now, at the same time, this is where it gets a little yucky, eugenics theory was coming about. And eugenics theory actually became eugenics law. And this was also the first time where governments started to kind of conflate these concept, concepts of health and appearance. Before that, there was never this assumption that if you look healthy, you are healthy, or if you match a standard, a weight standard, or an appearance standard, that actually means a health standard. But now, those two kind of concepts got jumbled. And soon, the ability to match someone's size with an assessment of someone's health was really just a hack. (laughs) And it was a hack for whom? It was a hack for the life insurance industry, because now they could assess mortality risk based on this simple mathematical formula, which you may be familiar with, called the BMI. Who the BMI? I know, I know. You hear about the BMI at your doctor's office. You read about it in articles. It's vexing. But do you really know about it? So the BMI, the Body Mass Index, was actually invented by a man named Adolf Quetlet. He's a Belgian mathematician between the years 1830 and 1850. And he, he never intended for the BMI to become any kind of index that would be used in the way that it's used right now. Instead, he was creating a hack just to help him in his own research. He's best known for trying to characterize the average man, which started as normal weight or what average weight was for the men that he was studying, soon morphed into this concept of what the ideal weight would be for these men he was studying. And that concept of ideal weight first started to surface in 1959. Now note, Quetlet was not a doctor. He wasn't a health expert of any kind. That wasn't even his motive. He was just making observations about mortality and criminology and white European men. 
But now we've taken his data, and it has been tweaked some over the years, but we've taken his data and we've made it say something very different than what it was actually trying to say. So the one thing important to note here is that yes, Quitlet created a hack, maybe had some usefulness for those life insurance companies. There's some loose correlations perhaps between size and mortality rates. But what that morphed into was an index that's used in schools and doctor's offices that doesn't just tell you how you compare in size to other people. It tells you how healthy you are. And it was never intended to do that. And I actually still don't think it has that power. Now, many call the BMI chart racist because it only studied white European men. But I'd also like to point out that almost 200 years ago, since those people Quetlet studied were born, as a human race, we've become more blended than ever. Like, I don't know if you've done genetic testing, but it's fascinating to find out how you're a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. But we are a lot more blended (laughs) than we ever were before, and even than we were 200 years ago. And so the fact that Quetlet only studied Caucasian, mostly men, in the mid-1800s, it feels to me like we can easily say that the BMI chart is nowhere near comprehensive enough for us to use as any kind of metric for people in all different stages of life from all different ethnicities, and then for women, right? Where does the BMI chart allow for changes in a woman's life? It doesn't. But yet, 50 years after the bathroom scale was invented, Americans finally had something to do with those bathroom scales because insurance companies started putting out weight standards in the 50s, 60s, 70s. MetLife called it the ideal weight standards for women. And then eventually the BMI chart was adopted as the standard in the 1980s. And that allowed us all the privilege of trying to achieve our ideal weight. But why? (sighs) So in 1998, that BMI chart that was adopted in the 80s, it got adjusted again, and the clinical guidelines actually shifted the metric of being overweight from 27.3, what it was in 1985, a BMI of 27.3 was considered overweight. It came down to 25 in 1998. Well, why did they do that? See, the BMI chart is a math formula, and I truly hope that you understand when you calculate your BMI, you are only calculating a number that was intended to be used to measure your size against the size of a group of European men in the mid-1800s. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of expect my body to be different than a group of European men from the mid-1800s. I mean, if you've ever visited historic Williamsburg or places like that, I'm constantly amazed at how people used to be shorter, it seemed. There were exceptions, but like the doorways were shorter and the beds were shorter and smaller. Now, because of our access to food, many of us are taller as as a culture, uh, globally, people are taller than they used to be. So when I have women tell me that I'm not healthy because of my BMI, it makes me really sad because I do understand that it feels like this one chart has a lot of power in our lives. And maybe you're trying to get insurance and that's a problem or your doctor is pushing you to pay attention to the BMI. Like I get it. It's coming at us from every single angle. But what if reality is 
There are many other ways to tell whether or not a person is healthy. And I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but what if reality is that there's actually a movement that wants to keep you focused on a math formula and a chart as your only metric of health and their motive is financial gain? I don't know. I'm not going to spend too much time there, but that's just something for you to think about. Because <laughs> I do sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I hope you'll stick with me. Like, I know this has been a long history lesson, friend, but I want you to see that these concepts, like health, like normal weight, like ideal weight, and even tracking your own weight, these are relatively new in the history of the world concepts but we act like they're in the Bible, (laughs) okay? We just do. We act like there's a standard of health that we must adhere to in the New Testament, like there's a BMI chart, like right after Hebrews. There's not. Trying to control your health was not a thing in the Bible days. So I hope you can see why maybe this is such a crazy, confusing issue for us to be caught up in today. Like today we have scientists and researchers studying our health as if it's a math formula that we can perfectly manipulate. The only problem is they keep finding new revelations and the new secret to longevity, and it keeps getting replaced over and over again. It's like, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, no, it's not it anymore. I got to do this. Oh, that's not enough anymore. I got to do this. Oh, there's a Netflix series out right now in 2023. It's called The Secrets of the Blue Zone. And this researcher, he actually wrote a book on it. He goes to these different places where people live to be more than 100. And it's interesting. In many of these episodes, he's looking at their diet. He's looking at their exercise practices. He's looking at how long they keep working, which actually also keeps them moving, aka exercising. But he also points out through the documentary the importance of community, how these centarians that live and in blue zones like often live with family and spend a lot more time socializing they're not put in nursing homes they're not put in isolation he talks about how they still go to church in these blue zones or they still do things with the community to keep involved he shows like a grand party that happens like every friday night in this one greek blue zone he also shows like in costa rica There's a blue zone where the people that are, you know, over 90 and centarians that are living there, they have lived on a diet of beans, squash, and corn at like every meal. Now, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I thought corn was bad. I thought corn was going to kill me. Like, oh, maybe it's not GMO corn. And I thought beans had too many leptins in them. And squash, that's fine. That's a vegetable. Like, where's the kale? Where's the spinach? Where's the leafy greens every day, right? And yet, they're living to be 100. And so, friend, I think he alludes to it a little bit through the documentary. But that's not how our culture treats it's longevity or health. Our culture talks about longevity and health as if it is completely dependent on your diet and exercise. But friend, health is not just about what you eat and how much you move. It's so much more than that. And yet, we spend a lot of time here trying to find the perfect diet or the perfect right workout for your lifestyle. We spend a lot of time trying to be healthy by avoiding certain foods. 
And I think that's hurting us. So let's talk about some specific examples of this and how many of us, myself included, we've followed the science, but potentially on an unhealthy journey with food. So I'm not going to go back too far. I'm going to just go back in my lifetime, things that I've witnessed. In the 1980s, Special K, Special K cereal, they advertised that we could eat cereal and not get fat. There was a special special K diet where you could replace two meals a day with a bowl of special K and eat a healthy dinner, and you were supposed to lose weight after 14 days of doing that. And then in the 1990s, we were all low fat. So we were told, avoid fat. If you don't want to be fat, don't eat fat. So I would have never touched an avocado or guacamole, olive oil and butter. Those things were sinful. I tried to cook without any fat. So I would use like chemical filled sprays, like spray butter. Some of you still have spray butter in your fridge. I know you do. (laughs) But we would all do anything we could to avoid fat, to eat low fat. We ate plain bagels. We ate lots of plain carbs like the special case Syria. And we also ate some fat-free treats where the fat was largely replaced with sugar, (laughs) but at least it didn't have fat in it. Oh, and then the 2000s came and we decided that protein was king, right? You have to eat fewer carbs and more protein and watch out for bananas because they have too much sugar in them, way too many carbs. We stopped counting calories in the 2000s and we started counting macronutrients instead, which just by the way, requires a whole lot more time and energy than just counting calories ever did. Eggs were questionable in terms of health benefits and were deemed possibly dangerous to one's cholesterol in the 1990s, but now it's the 2000s and eggs are back again because we need that simple, easy source of protein. Of course, the demonization of sugar has been a big part of our cultural health narrative too. And while arguably we eat more sugar now than ever before, there's also so many more messages telling us how bad it is than ever before. And that makes me think, hmm, well, why are there more people eating more sugar than ever before? And at the same time, I don't think you could stop someone on the street that would be like, oh, really? I didn't know sugar wasn't great for me. It's almost as if making it a forbidden fruit is making it taste sweeter. It's making us want it more. I don't know, just throwing that out there. By the 2010s, everyone was doing the South Beach diet, or then it was called the ketogenic or keto diet, where fat then became the king, okay? So we had carbs were king, and then protein was king, and now fat is king. And although I learned quite well through the 1990s how not to eat fat, and that I was supposed to avoid fat now, it's... 2012, and I'm supposed to be trying to make fat bombs so I can reach my fat goal every day. You've been there, maybe. (laughs) Um, A couple more here. By 2012-2013, a BBC documentary by by a British telejournalist, it purported a theory that you could get thin and live longer through a concept called intermittent fasting. And by 2019, it was such a trend here in the United States that companies started making products 
products to help you fast better, help you break your fast better. And then, of course, a California study came out not too long ago. I, I researched it for my 40-day body image book, so all the all the data and citations are there. But this man was a religious intermittent faster. I mean, he had done it for seven years and was running this big study at a big California university to prove how effective it was. And you know what he found? He found it didn't make any difference. People ate the same foods on this study for the same period of time, uh, weeks-wise, but he let one group eat at any time of the day, and he had one group do IF. And guess what? Their results were the exact same. Ah, friend, that is just a recent history of dieting. Like, Back in the early 1900s, there was a diet, this was a legit thing called the anti-swamps diet. And I did say swamps, S-W-A-M-P-S diet, because some author noticed that people who lived near swamps tended to be fatter than those who didn't. And so move away from the swamp, lose weight. I mean, that sounds ridiculous to us now. But I wonder how many anti-swap diets we're falling for every year. I mean, it just takes one influencer losing weight, toning their body, and then they get a few other influencers to do it too. And thanks to TikTok and Instagram, we all know about it. And if it worked for them, maybe it'll work for me and I've got to try it. And yes, some of these trends are based in studies. There are huge benefits to epileptic children who follow a ketogenic diet. Some bodies feel better on fewer carbs. Some feel better when eating carbs, though, too. And the problem is these food rules have become like religious laws to us. In the name of health, we pursue these trends vigorously. In the name of health, we don't eat bread, or we don't eat avocados, or we don't eat breakfast because we're trying to be healthier. But does anyone else feel jerked around? Like when I was a kid, I was told that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Eat it to be healthy. And now it's trendy to skip it to be healthy. What? And that brings me to last week. Yes, last week, I got an email from a health influencer that I follow. He's a researcher. And you know what he said? He said maybe he was wrong about carbs. Low fat might be the way to go. Yes. I fell backwards into 1987. <laughs> Low fat is coming back, Mark. My words. Tracy Brown, a dietitian friend of mine, she and I did an episode of the podcast uh, a while ago, and it was called The Fear of Bread. So you can look for it. It's the Fear of Bread episode. But Tracy talked about this reality that there's only three macronutrients, right? Carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And each one takes a turn kind of being the king of the hill, while another one takes a turn being demonized. But the problem is our bodies were designed to need all three macronutrients. So whichever one you deprive your body of, that eventually is going to catch up to your body and that's the only one your body's going to want. If you've ever tried to be keto, you understand this, right? All you wanted was carbohydrates at some point. And maybe maybe you made it six weeks, maybe you made it a year, maybe you didn't make it six minutes, but at some point your body was like, uh-uh, we need carbs. You went back to those carbs again. And that wasn't about willpower. That was about how God designed your body to run. 
That was physiology, not psychology. And what I think is funny, so it's 2023 as I'm recording this, what I think is funny is I am watching the rise of biscuits and it makes me laugh. I've noticed these biscuit places showing up where people can just go and buy biscuits. Well, 10 years ago in the, in the heat of paleo and keto, no one was going to go to a store and buy biscuits. No one was buying bread. But now, now that we're moving past that and carbs are back to being king or on their way back to being king, yeah, biscuits taste good. Let's go for it. This is no accident, friend. We're on a Ferris wheel. Keep going round and round and round. My goal here. And this bonus unit of the course is for you to see behind the curtain. (laughs) You know, the scene from The Wizard of Oz where he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He says it loud into the microphone so he sounds big and ominous. But but Dorothy sees is just this old guy standing there with the microphone. (sighs) It's kind of what these messages about health and diet have been for us. We need to look behind the curtain. We have to ask ourselves, where are we getting our information about what food is healthy and what food is not healthy? Are the sources that we're getting our information from motivated by anything, right? Like, let's just talk legitimately about bias, right? You know, if a company has a lot of stake in low-carb foods, they're going to put a lot of money into diet plans and health research around low-carb living, and so on and so forth. Friend, if you are following our culture's health trends, you are following a moving target. And I don't, I don't know, maybe it feels like it hasn't been a moving target. Maybe you've just kind of bought it so much that you it's hard to see it but friend I I really pray today that you can see it I pray that you can see maybe a pattern in your own life where you were doing this thing and cutting out this thing and trying to do this thing and then you were doing this thing and cutting out this thing and adding this thing and trying I, I think many of us have been on this roller coaster and it's just like beauty right one day, no one wants a butt. In the 1990s, everyone's trying to work their butt off so they can have a skinny, flat butt to have that heroin chic, thin look. And now everyone wants a butt, and girls are complaining that they'll never have a fuller butt. I mean, I never thought I'd hear the day, right? It's the same with food. One decade, you're avoiding olive oil, and a few decades later, you're avoiding the bread. <laughs> <laughs> that you wish you could dip in that olive oil now that it's legal to eat. Uh, even the food pyramid, friends, maybe you learned the food pyramid in school, but even that has changed over the years to match the trends. And there's some interesting data around like why it took so long to put the food pyramid out in the first place and all the lobbying groups in Washington that had a big voice in influencing like no matter what the data said, as the government tried to analyze the data and create these guidelines for us, these lobbying groups had a huge voice in that. So again, I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist here. I just want you to start asking some questions. I just want you to think carefully about these health principles that perhaps you've just accepted as capital T truth, when really they're little t truth. What we know about food from science, 
is not gospel truth. It's always subject to change. And it is always changing, always has changed, and will continue to change throughout the course of our lives. The bigger question is, is this healthy for our bodies? Is following all these food trends, going from this thing to that thing, restricting this, now restricting that, is that good for our bodies? And I think the short answer is no. Oh, friend, I hope that was helpful for you as you consider the question, what is health really? What is my responsibility around my health? I do continue with 30 more minutes where I dig into scripture to kind of answer the question I left you with there from a biblical perspective. If you're interested in listening to that, hey, you're going to have to go grab the course. It's the Body Image Freedom Framework. You can just do the online course. You don't have to do the coaching component, although I recommend you do the coaching component, but you can just take the course. You can go to improvebodyimage.com and choose the course only option to find out more about that. And you can save $50 if you use the code podcast. So you can work through it at your own pace. There's 12 modules just chocked full with information that will take you on an intentional journey to heal your body image, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've tried. I think this course would be great for you. So check it out at improvebodyimage.com. Well, I thank you for listening today. I hope something today has helped you stop comparing and start living. Bye-bye. The Compare Do Show is proud to be part of the Life Audio Podcast Network. For more great Christian content, go to lifeaudio.com. Have you ever attempted to read the entire Bible? Did you do it, or did you only make it part way? I'm John Stonge, and I host a podcast that will make it possible for you to make it through the entire Bible, one chapter at a time. I've been hosting the Chapter a Day Audio Bible Podcast since 2015, and every single day of the week, I read one chapter of Scripture, then follow that up with a time of prayer. And if you're looking for daily insights and inspiration directly from God's Word, I hope you'll give the Chapter a Day Audio Bible a listen. You can find it at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.